You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hello there, my name is Stuart Goldsmith. Welcome to the show. Today I'm talking to Olga Koch, who as well as being an exceptional comedian has a background in computer programming, computer science, and we're going to talk about the parallels between comedy uh, and computer code, and uh, we're going to get pretty deep and nerdy into it straight away. Quick little warning at the uh, just at the off. About five or ten minutes in, Olga uses an example, a joke which refers to Marilyn Manson. It's not a joke about Marilyn Manson, nor indeed the awful, awful things that Marilyn Manson has been accused of doing. Um, I'm just flagging it because it's a shame. We both agree at the time it's a shame that uh, that it had to be about that particular person. We're looking at the amoral components of a joke and not. Uh, anything to do with the uh, the terrible and serious accusations levied at Marilyn Manson. Nonetheless, let's not let that overtake what is, completely apart from that, a very upbeat conversation um, about some really uh, interesting things. Not only uh, her ruthless pragmatism and the fact that you cannot eat hope for dinner but other lighter and frothier things than that. So without further ado, oh, uh, well, no extra, sorry, here's some ado. No extras on this one, the whole episode coming at you. And uh, if you haven't yet heard the Bethany Black one, which similarly had uh, no extras, it's all there for you. Um, that was last week's episode. This is this week's episode. But if you do fancy extras from any episode that has them, you can support the podcast with a regular donation of £2 a month or as much as you would like to donate. Uh, everyone gets the same stuff. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. That's all the ado. That's all the caveats. This was a great conversation. Here's Olga Koch. The show of yours that I, I heard was the, the show that you did most uh, recently, which is released on vinyl, I believe, via Monkey Barrel. Thank you very, very much. Thank you to Monkey Barrel. So the title of the show is If Then, and yes. that show is in part about computer science and computer programs uh, following lines of, you know, following lines of inquiry. If this happens, if this is true, then do this. That is a very layperson's understanding of some of the things you outlined in there. And I suppose I'm interested in the extent to which any of that is reflected in your creative process, or whether you have discovered any similarities or differences in your creative process as a writer of comedy. Because comedy can be not formulaic, but there are certain joke formats, there are certain established ways of doing things that one can dig for and unearth and become expert at. And I wondered if, as someone with a kind of, with more of a computer base than most people, most comics, do you find 
surprising parallels or is there no link at all between between the two things I think there definitely is. I think there's so the the first of all, thank you so much for such an insightful question. <laughs> um, so I always uh, thought I always thought that I would um, study math at university. I started doing math at university, realized that it was way too difficult, and I'm not smart enough. Um, and I enjoy uh, partying much more than that uh, because I am a legend. So I took <laughs> some computer science courses, and I thought that like the itch that it scratched in me, the mathematical itch of like neatness and things making sense and fitting in, and just like everything being a puzzle to solve, that that was really satisfying. And I thought, oh. Well, this is great. And so that's why I started studying computer science. And then um, I've always been a huge fan of comedy. And I think like my favorite my favorite like most satisfying moments of comedy that I come back to in my head aren't necessarily like ha ha funny. Some of them sure are like someone I've been slipping on the banana peel and saying something stupid whatever by accident but like the ones that stick in my head are ones that are like logically neat and 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 are like structurally very exciting to me um that almost like verge into like again puzzles the word that i keep coming back to is puzzle and so when i a lot of the time i will have again for lack of a better word probably for formulas for jokes where i'm like i want to write a joke about this um and i want it to be in this structure and i think this is maybe a kind of why i'm obsessed with twitter because twitter will have a new meme every day and you just need to like you need to insert the right x value in order to make the meme work and so it's it's all like puzzles to solve and I won't say that all of my jokes are that way but i think the most one of the most satisfying bits is finding the the right puzzle piece into the structure that you like that you've chosen i am so thrilled that my assumptions were correct about the way your mind works <laughs> okay so with all of that with all of that in mind first off can you give me an example of something the sort of thing you're talking about in terms of your inspiration like jokes that you you mentioned jokes that you return to things that are your favorites because they resolve the answer to a puzzle neatly can you give us a, an example of that kind of a thing Oh God, I don't remember who wrote the joke, but I'm, and as, this is a horrible, this is a horrible reference to make right now, given everything in the news. And I just would like to, to say that Marilyn Manson is a terrible human being. And sure. I don't remember who wrote the joke, but have you heard that Marilyn Manson removed, sorry, yeah, removed his own rib so he could suck his own rib. <laughs> removed his own rib so he could suck his own rib. <laughs> but that's like that, i come back to that joke it's incredible i don't remember who wrote it but just the 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 it might have been harris Wattels, but i'm not sure but just like that that is logically like in computer science that's recursion that is that is incredible and the fact that the solution ah. is in the question oh yes. it's so satisfying logically I, the fact that you're introduced to the punchline that you already knew before Oh, that like honestly is Mate, a I, body I, high. I'm absolutely a body high. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> Talk, now recursion. Talk to me about recursion because I'm desperately racking up other things. I'm trying to not lose sight of other kind of like questions stemming off from all of these things. But I was describing someone to another comic yesterday. I was describing a joke, and I said, I don't know what the na- I said. I don't know what the name of that joke is. It's where the it's where the thing is the thing itself. It's where, like, what's funny is that the thing itself, the the thing you're saying is an example of what it is. And do you know what I mean? And I got stuck. And I think it might be recursion. Is that what that is? It is recursion. Yeah. What is that? 
can you for people who are less giddy or frothy about jokes than we're being in this conversation what is what is recursion in the real world what's like how would you actually describe recursion not about jokes i feel like if any computer programmers are listening to this they're gonna they're gonna be very upset that i'm the face of computer programming <laughs> and comedy but i think in in the simplest terms the way that i understand it and i might be wrong to be, to, to be completely honest i might be wrong but the idea of performing the a task on something and then performing the same task on the product of that. So essentially just like reiterating the same task onto the product itself. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So with, and because those things, like I love things like that because I love, I love jokes and I love being surprised. I love the end being the buried in the the end being buried in the beginning. That's a kind of Aristotelian tragedy kind of thing. Yeah. And the example I often will say on this podcast is, uh, uh, Simon Munnery's joke about trying to find the Aristotelian tragedy within the death of Rod Hull. I don't know if you know who that is. I know you weren't entirely educated. No, in the- so sorry. Rod Hull was a children's entertainer who had a naughty emu puppet that would savage the- his interviewees. And he died tragically uh, trying to change. He was an old man and he tried to uh, adjust his uh, TV aerial on top of his house during a storm because he was watching the football. And these things, no link between them. And Simon Munnery's fabulous joke was that he was trying to find the Aristotelian tragedy in that situation, which means that his end must have been inescapable. And it is simply this, as an elderly man in high wind on a ladder at the top of his house who has spent his career training his left arm to disobey him. And that is like the <laughs> mo- to- totally amoral. You know, I'm enjoying there not the death of a human being, but the 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 a- completely amoral wonderfulness of the ideas of making that yeah. work. Like that has a similar kind of wow, right? Oof. Yeah. So yeah. I I love um, connections like that in that same way. I am similarly kind of turned on by that kind of ah, oh, this this fits that. It's part of the reason I'm really into time travel movies. A satisfying time travel movie. When all the pieces were there for you, and then there, and it, and you thought you knew where it was going, and it all clicks together in a surprising and satisfying way. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. So let's talk about your own stuff. When was the first time you wrote a joke that you felt, or what was the first joke you wrote that you kind of rubbed your hands together with glee in that kind of way? Because I think you're someone who, and I've read in your reviews, you know, it has been said of you that you have a good mind for jokes. You can think in jokes, right? Ugh. That's very nice. That is too nice. It's too nice. Well, I retract um, it. But, <laughs> but, you know, but, so can you think of something you wrote where you were like, oh, I've written a, there we go. That works. That's, that's, a, that's the sort of joke I like to hear. Um, I guess I'll, t- I'll tell you a joke that was, I think, one of the first jokes that I wrote before I was a stand-up comedian that I wrote. And I thought, this is a joke. This is a fully joke. It's not like a funny observation. It's a joke. Um, I, I think I like, I, I was too attached to it for a very long time. And I think I tried to w- make it work in my last hour. And then I just need to put it to bed because I've been running around with it for maybe 10 years. Just being like, look at this thing. Look at it. And the joke is um, just the, I, I've, I've had different iterations of it. But the idea that her pleasure condoms break on purpose because the only pleasure a woman can know is the joy of motherhood. Fantastic. And I am. Rem- I remember, I remember running around with it and thinking, just like, oh, I, I took what the name that is her pleasure condoms. I didn't like take the name of thin air. We all know her pleasure condoms, and that's what they call them. And I just kind of, I just turned the idea of her pleasure on its head. Yeah. Um. In a, in a maybe very outdated and archaic way, obviously. Uh, it is sarcastic but yeah i remember being very excited about the 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 when i would think it was like 19 maybe when i wrote it or 20 yeah. of being able to use something that's there and just turn it on its head 
Yes, yes, great example. Um, and, I've, and that joke is in the is in the special. It's on the vinyl thing, and I've, I've seen you seen you doing clubs as well. Yeah. And it is it's really funny now to think of you running around giddily, going, "Yes, I've nailed it!" With something that on the night you perf- <laughs> you perform in a very you know you have a kind of. Do you think you're a high status act on stage? I don't. So, I mean, depending on the room, sometimes I feel like I have to be. Otherwise, if you're being too self-deprecating, people think you have no idea what you're doing. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't describe you at all as a self-deprecating act. You know, I think I feel like you're quite a high-status act, um, which is like in a Thank kind you. of. I wonder are there links with kind of the way Sindhu V, for example, is quite a high-status lady on stage. Like you're not scolding anyone. You're not you're not like an angry kind of high-status like a Rod Gilbert or a bored high-status like a Romish Ranganathan. But you have a certain kind of like uh, I'm not taking any shit quality. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And is that and is that reflective of your actual personality? I think so there's I think there's two components to that. The first reason I think I have to be in some ways um a bit of an authority apart from the fact that I think a lot of the time and I'm sure that this is something that a lot of people have brought up like as a woman you you uh, you have like a lot to prove in many rooms and so you do need to make sure to appear as if you are in control and let people know that you know what you're doing because a lot of the time they'll be doubting you. Um another thing is that at, specifically in both my hour-long shows and the first one i was talking a lot about like uh the history of russia and economics and privatization and the second one i was talking a lot about computer science and so when i as a comedian want like am putting myself in the shoes sorry and putting myself in the position of authority of hi i'm here to tell you about a thing you have to be an authority otherwise why am i wasting people's time by telling them and explaining them a thing Mm-hmm. So if I come out and I say, I know nothing about computer science, here's an hour about com- computer science, that's not, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So you need to, if I'm, if I endeavor to explain something, I need to position myself as at least somewhat of an expert in the thing that I'm trying to explain. Yes. Understood. Understood. So I suppose what I'm getting at is how much of your, I feel like on stage you have a kind of, amongst, amongst the tools that you have, you have this angle of, I'm from the you know from the computer science background I'm a woman in a man's world and you also have the angle of I'm Russian and you don't understand that necessarily so I can tell you about what that's like you know from <laughs> like I'm an you you kind of certainly yeah. in the UK it feels like you are an authority so there's that word again authority about you know you're an authority on your Russianness you are saying this is how it happened do you know what I mean both of those shows you described have an element whereby you are teaching yeah. us a thing you're not doing that show necessarily to a Russian audience Yes. And I and I always, especially when talking about these shows, are I'm very, very conscious of be of saying I'm I'm not the authority of all things Russians. I haven't lived in Russia for years. I'm also one person who was born in Russia. I can't talk for a whole country. And the same way that like I'm very much a stand up comedian and like I've never worked as a computer programmer. I just study computer science at university. And so I'm I'm not saying that I am an expert overall, but in that room doing comedy I am the expert. Yes, and and in that, and not just in that room, but in the comedy pantheon, right? There's not many 
I mean, I, I don't know. I can't think of many other Russian comics and I can't think of many other former you know, computer background comics. Is there a little club? Are you, you gotta, in a WhatsApp? You've got to have a USB. If being funny <laughs> isn't going to be your USB, you've got to find something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, how does it feel having those two kind of separate angles? Are they ever... Um, do they feel like they have worked for you? Do they feel like you need to make sure you don't lean too hard into them lest you get typecast as the Russian computer lady? I think with the first one, I was terrified of being typecast as a Russian lady. And then I and then I very consciously did a show about something completely different. I mean, I do mention Russia in as much as like, yes, that's my origin story, but it's not a show about Russia by no means. And so I think having... I think I had a lot of doubt where like people won't care about what I have to say about anything other than Russia. I told my Russia story. Um, and then b- ha- like being able to talk about an hour about something that wasn't Russia was self-affirming. And so I feel like let's, I mean, let's hope I just keep pulling more and more stuff out of the bag. I have, I'm officially became a British citizen. So I have an immigration ang- angle now. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to keep trying to do stuff <laughs> that, that can position me as an expert sparkling water that's a big one i'm gonna be the only sparkling water comedian on the circuit (laughs) okay so the i suppose something that is in because i'm I'm, I'm just i'm gonna follow the computer angle for a bit just because i feel like i kind of got lucky with that in terms of thinking of comedy as uh as a thing you know as a computer program like andrew o'neill on the show talked about how he regarded a joke as a magic spell Right, like you, you say a thing, you pronounce the incantation in the right way, in the right rhythm, and it has a physical effect in the world. A person laughs despite themselves. Is there, a, is there, a, which I really like. I think that's a lovely pet. You know, that's a lovely way of thinking about it. Yeah, is, that's is, is there a, is there a kind of a similar analogy to a joke being like a line of code, whereby if you get the things in the right order in the right place, which is vulnerable inherently, like if you get a bracket out of place, the whole thing's fucked. But if you get it right, it has an effect. Absolutely. Couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah, that's wonderful. And also there's, um, okay, this is going to get a little a bit technical. I mean, it's going to be technical. I really want it to get a bit technical. Go for it. <laughs> people, people who don't know about coding, people who do know about coding are like, we learned this on day one, Olga. You can't code for shit. You literally sure. watch the YouTube I know, video. I know nothing, uh, so explain to me and then we'll pick up everyone. That's fine. So there's this idea, um, there's this concept of a function that, it, that happens in most in all computer computer languages, I want to say, but the idea that you create an algorithm that, that you could then apply to a bunch of other stuff. So you could say, um, it's essentially, it's a, it's a way to not rewrite the code over and over again every time you, you want to input something new and just apply the same thing to a new variable. Yep. Does that make sense? I feel like that. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that, yeah. Yeah? Okay, and so I think... And so in a computer program, when you're, when, when you're coding, again, I, this is a very theoretical angle. I'm, day-to-day computer programming is not this, and I am aware. But um, the ease with which you're like, oh, all I have to do is just call this function that's already there for me. That's sort of how it feels to have, specifically with a callback. Because you're like, oh, I know this already. And so when you say a callback, all you have to say is one word or make one noise or make one reference. And you are, everything else is done for you in the minds of the audience because you seeded it earlier in. And that is stunning. Because if you, st- if you show people a video clip of just a reaction to a callback, th- that will look insane. It will look like you saying one word and everybody going crazy for it and laughing. But if you place it right, essentially all the work is 
already done for you. That's so yes. wonderful. The idea that you could plant that and just and just recall it with one word. That's so cool. I may at some point release the video of my own face during you saying that because I am just clapping my hands together with glee. <laughs> that I love. I mean, of course, our callbacks are effectively of like algorithmic functions. Yeah. So I don't know how you'd even phrase that. So is there a point at which the parallel breaks down whereby, I mean, I would love to think that comedy has its own inherent magic, which cannot be, you know, it can't be confined to the terminologies <laughs> of the language. But, you know, I don't know if you've seen uh, season two of Westworld. You know, what, what we learned from that without wanting to spoil anything is that humans are not all that complicated. <laughs> so is there a point at which, is there a point at which you look at certain favourite jokes of your, your own or other people's and you think, this breaks all the rules, it doesn't make sense. Or does even breaking the rules form part of a rule? I mean, yes. Again, I, I, I think both both are correct in one way, like a subversion of a rule. Is there a reinforcement of a rule? Um, and so, like, when we break rules, we are referencing the rules that already exist. So there is no such thing as, like, breaking a rule in, in a vacuum. And I guess there's loads of formulas that we use in every day that like we just take for granted. We're like rule of threes, rule of threes, great. Or like hard K sounds are funny. That's just an sure. axiom of comedy. Yeah. Um, com com pod. There you go. And um, but I mean I I I think there is there is there is the, the opposite of all of that is watching something and not being able to explain why it's funny, but then laughing uncontrollably. And I think um, I think part of it was like some an enjoyment of something like I think you should leave on Netflix, right? Is this idea yes. that it's like it's so absurd. And if you sit down, you I you can kind of formulate why it's funny, but the idea is that it's just like, "Oh my god, what is happening? This is hilarious," right? Like yes. what's so funny about the like the little the little button that you, do you have you seen it? Sorry. Uh yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. But like when they <laughs> the, the 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 pulling on the t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I guess yeah. like yes, I suppose like there is some structure there, but in reality, that's just it's just funny. And you not understanding why it's funny is is a different kind of pleasure as opposed to laughing from a callback in which you understand exactly why it's funny, but it's also an inside joke. Yes. Does that make sense? So this is Olga. I'm I'm having the time of my life talking to her. Recursion. It's called recursion. Who knew? Um, there is a bit that we edited out from the end of this in which I invited Olga. Here's me making it pointless, rendering it pointless that we edited it out. Um, but at some point, um, you know, I was talking to you about uh, Tom Neenan and I doing some sort of Zoom chat for members of the Insiders Club uh, where we could just talk about our favourite joke formats. I think either I'll invite Olga to that or do a completely separate one with her because I think the idea of getting in a room with a specialist or two and just just kind of gleefully going over some of our favorite jokes and ideas for jokes and way jokes ways jokes work is a really attractive one so watch this space sign up to the insiders club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and you will be made aware of when that is and get to to hear it in recorded form afterwards hey and on the subject of amazing urls you can catch up with everything that olga's up to at rockandrolga.com r-o-c-k-n-r-o-l-g-a rockandrolga right uh, also you can follow her on twitter at rockandrolga very very funny on twitter too so with that in mind let's get back to the brilliant olga cock jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So you were talking about um, Twitter and how there is a kind of meme value to Twitter jokes whereby you go, oh, this is the latest thing. You know, the whatever it is, Hanford Parish Council thing that came out a couple of weeks later, and yeah. oh, a couple of weeks ago. And just seconds later, the, the idea of that was being plugged into all of the meme formats, which I love. And there is a, I mean, if I was at college yeah. now, I'd be writing my dissertation about memes and how they replace pub jokes as these kind of shared, <laughs> shared creative commons things that you can't really make money out of. And it's, it's just beautiful. It's this incredible democratised creativity. I love memes. I'm terrible at them, but I love them. So Jermaine Clement, uh, follow A Jermaine Clement, no R in Jermaine, you idiot, uh, on Twitter. He said, working on the perfect tweet. <laughs> Didn't see checks notes on my bingo card. That's it. That's the tweet. Let clap that clap sync clap in. Send tweet. And I thought that was such a beautiful, like, I feel like I've been trying to write that tweet. I'm aware that that tweet has been out there to be written. Because that's just taking all of the different memes of what's tweet is and put together. Like, it makes me think that there will at some point be some sort of meme joke singularity whereby one thing simply comes to represent everything, right? The age of Ultron. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's clearly not a question, but you are very good at Twitter. I see see you being very funny on Twitter. What are your... what what are your kind of impulses for Twitter? How do you see Twitter as distinct or as as complementary to your other stand-up, to your other comedy? So I, I... I'm a huge fan of Twitter. I... This is... I mean, it's so lame to say... Um, again, I think I'm, 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 I'm a fan of the Twitter community and I also recognize how awful and toxic the community can be. And I also recognize the fact that all of it feeds into a giant corporation becoming richer and more powerful. So that all being said, um, I, so I, I love everything about the memes that you exactly, you said that no one, no one, no one owns them. And there's this, this community feeling of. Um, we all we are all being creative just for the sake of creativity. Yeah. But then there's another bit of it is what we just talked about with the with the callbacks. And when you watch really good improv, I'm sure you know, um, you feel like you're in on an inside joke. And there's this like feeling like oh we're all part of a select group and only we get it and that's so much fun. And I feel like that's with very good tweets that's what it feels like because it's using a vernacular that only the people on the website know and so it's this feeling of like oh these are my people because we are all in on this joke it's our inside joke yes yes yeah great i mean i don't know what my follow-up question is because you've nailed it i think that's exactly what it's like and what's it's so 
Like, do you think, well, let's talk about your voice then. Is, is your voice on Twitter distinct from your voice as a comic? Do you say the same sorts of things on Twitter that you would say on stage? Or does the fact of, as you've just described, the shared vernacular inform your voice? So, so such that it's different. Are there things, are there Twitter jokes you've made that were very successful on Twitter, but obviously you can't just stand on stage reading out your tweets. You're not Eddie Peppertone. These are my tweets. Um, but you're, uh, <laughs> that reference got nothing and that's absolutely fine. <laughs> There's a, co- a brilliant comic called Eddie Peppertone. I don't know who that who, is, but that oh, sounds he's amazing. Funny. An amazing guy. I mean, years ago, he would be, he'd be standing with sheaves of paper in his hand <laughs> reading out my tweets, shouting, these are my tweets. <laughs> and he'd read out his tweets. Great. But um, obviously you might not do that, but are there things whereby the the angle of what you're tweeting about wouldn't work when said in your stand-up persona? That's the question. Oh, yeah, of course. I feel like apart from the, the, the tweets that use that inside Twitter vernacular that absolutely just doesn't translate into spoken word or to people who aren't as brain dead from Twitter as I am, they just wouldn't understand what any of it means. Um, And the puns that don't work (laughs) out loud. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think my Twitter persona is very clear, but also very one dimensional. She's very just like, I fucked, I fucked your little brother. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, which is one of your angles. That is one of your angles on stage, right? (laughs) I mean, it it used to be not anymore. I'm too, I'm too old for that. Um, it was cute when I, when I said I, I like 19 year olds when I was 24. It's not as cute when it's 28. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Okay. Um, uh, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I think uh, there's like there are some topics that I think are too serious for Twitter, and so I, I would get away with talking about it on stage. Whereas if I tweeted about them, I feel like I it would just be too sanctimonious. Uh, and um, and conversely, if I said anything, I I tweeted it out loud. People would be like, "That woman needs help." So I think she, yeah, she's much flatter and she's much more of a character than what I am on stage, which is more three-dimensional literally and (laughs) i am literally more three-dimensional on stage i have topography (laughs) okay so when it comes to writing material for the stage writing your uh your stand-up stuff are you what is the what's like the very beginning of the process for a new bit? Is it the urge to have something new to say, or is it that you have something new to say and you really want to say it? So I think there's it's either you, you need to write a new Edinburgh Hour, which was back in the day a big motivator for a lot of people to write uh, to write the real the real ones will remember, yeah, um, <laughs> which. Uh, or something funny happened and I need to talk about it right now. Okay. Okay. Like one time my agent sent me out on an audition uh, for a Bond girl and I was in a room full of like five feet tall women and the casting agent like basically laughed when she saw me and I was like, I need to tell people this otherwise it's just, (laughs) I can't be sitting on this. Or when I shat myself once. So it's things like that happen and you need to talk about them on stage and it's almost, part of it is therapy, but a part of it Part of it is also, I think this is funny, but also I think part of it is uh, the origin story of most comedians, which is we were bullied and we need to get ahead of the narrative and make fun of ourselves before someone else can. So as opposed to someone being like, does she think she could be cast as a Bond girl? I need to be there first and be like, no, no, no. no. How funny is it that someone thought that I could be a Bond girl? Sure. Okay. 
Um, so to what extent were you bullied? Or is that, is that like a, uh, is that a shorthand way of saying you didn't enjoy other kids at school? Or was that like a real, you were bullied, bullied? I don't think, I, I think I was quite bullied in middle school and to the point where like my mom sent me to a different school because she saw how terrible okay. a time I was having. Oh, uh, shit. No, no, no. I mean, it's fine. It's I literally, this is the first time I thought of it in a very long time, at least okay. like on a conscious level. Um, but I think I was like very class clowny in high school and I suffered a lot with, with the, the idea that I wouldn't be considered as a romantic interest. Uh because I was too busy like making fart noises with my face, um, so <laughs> but I think it was it, it's all it, it all kind of originated in trying to get ahead of of the narrative and making fun of yourself before someone else could. Okay, why would you not be considered as a romantic interest? Did you think? I think because I was not very attractive. Um. Yes, I like or not like conventionally attractive or attractive in a way that was considered attractive in my school. Okay, and I think I was doing I was doing a lot of like compensating with like being very loud and like trying to get attention through being funny, which isn't necessarily sexy. Yeah, fair enough. Which is something I learned later. <laughs> was your <laughs> was your were your attempts to be funny successful? Were you kind of recognised as a, a funny one, or were you recognised as a desperate person trying to be funny? Oh, I think a little bit of both. I think there was a, there there were very clear people who were like, "Oh my god, Olga's the funniest girl in the world," and in, in in the world, okay, in the school, okay, in the class. <laughs> oh my god, she's. She- <laughs> I love that. Love that about myself. Uh, but yeah, other people were like, she's crazy. Like, I I rem- distinctly remember some people like really not enjoying it and kind of seeing through it, rightfully so, that it was an attention grab. Um, but then others, like, I there's, there's, a, there's a joke I tell, which is a true story. I ran for a student council vice president of my high school under the slogan, I want me some cock. Okay. So, like, that would be a stunt for me to give everybody stickers that said, I want me some cock and, like have a poster that said that and like that would be a classic a classic cock stunt uh, you know a fantastic stunt on which you couldn't be called out because it's legitimately your name so that must give you a certain amount exactly of, like, for someone who's prototypical class clown material to have a surname which sounds rude <laughs> and follow it in the right light you know then that's like that's good ammo right <laughs> yeah there, there was very very few jobs that i could have done with my name I'm I'm wondering how much the the and this is obviously I would caveat this with I'm a man talking to a woman about her feelings of how attractive she is so feel free to put a lid on this at any point but I'm wondering how much of the material that you then went on to do in which you are kind of a sexually aggressive woman on stage is informed by uh you controlling the narrative that you weren't able to control at school Oh my goodness! This is this is huge. This is something that no one has ever brought up. Um, oh God! I think probably yes. I think there's okay. So there, there, there's this thing about me is that it, especially towards the end of high school, I was so desperate to lose my virginity and I was so horny all the time that I, when I arrived at university, I was like, I need to lose my virginity today because I, it's like, it felt like a face tattoo. I was like, I need to do this now. 
it's it i was like i was so kind of sexual in, in my presentation that it just didn't make sense for me to be a virgin because i had like watched so much sex in the city that i was like i am samantha samantha cannot be a virgin this doesn't make sense uh, so i lost my virginity literally first day of university i was like i just saw some guy at a club and i was like you now and, and um because i because i saw myself as a certain person and i just needed to fulfill that the density that I density, <laughs> I must fulfill my density. that I knew I had yeah the density uh yeah so I think I think a lot of what I am on stage is like kind of marrying reality and who it is that I wanted to be and I think the reason I wanted to be that person was probably informed by the fact that I like couldn't get any in high yes school. okay okay and they and the element of and let's just just the kind of the timeline of where, because you moved, you were educated in the States or you went to high school in the States. You grew up in Russia. I'm not quite sure what the time that I didn't see the first, I didn't see the debut hour where you nailed all of this. <laughs> um, from when I was 13, 14, moved to the UK, but I went to an American high school. So everybody was oh, in the UK. I didn't get that, that bit. Okay, weird. gotcha. Yeah. And then I went to university in America and then I came okay. back here. And when you were studying in the States and you were in, as, as you've said on stage, I've heard that kind of bit of yours about being, you know, being shown the, the cartoon, which I think is an XKCD cartoon, is it? The the comic of uh, a, yeah, a boy getting yeah. something wrong and everyone The real going, ones now. Yeah, right. Which yeah. is the second time I'm saying that sentence. <laughs> uh, the... The, well, someone, I mean, I think I had that in mind and I think someone online might, I might have seen that comment online, so I can't lay claim to that. But I went, yeah, that makes sense rather than I originally came up with that idea myself. But the idea being for people who don't know the bit or the comic um, is that there's a bunch of people in a cl- in a computer class and a boy r- gets something wrong and everyone says you're stupid and a girl gets something wrong and everyone says girls are stupid. So the one of the kind of pillars of the show that you have, if then, is your kind of recognition of the part played by misogyny, by external misogyny, and perhaps by internalised misogyny about the idea of one's place, the idea of a woman's place in a in a computer class, or a you know your your place in a computer class as well. Those, those these are the those are the kind of the the that's the language of the show, and I wondered whether. I've got I've got half a question here and I'm probably having to think my way through it slightly more delicately than I otherwise might. But part of your material is about the fact that men are really blown away by how like a man in inverted commas you are in your tastes. Like the joke, but you know, one of your punchlines being Olga, you know, an incredible amount about World War II, right? Like, which is a great, that's a great joke. And it also has the ring yeah. of truth. Like I could believe someone said that to you because that marries up those two subjects so beautifully. Um, so with that in mind, do you, do you perceive your interests in joke format and formulae and the end being buried in the beginning and recursion and things like that. Do you consider those things to be a male way of looking at comedy that you are into because your mind works like that? Or do you think that they are completely gender-free ways of looking at comedy that... I don't know what the end of that question is. Do you know roughly what I'm getting at? I've bailed out of a really good question. Yes, I understand the question. Tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, I, yes, I, I completely understand the question. I don't at all think that the way that I think of comedy is gendered in any way, shape or form. Uh, that being said, I think that the culture of exceptionalism is extremely counterproductive to getting any marginalized or minority group involved into reaching equality. It's, it's horrific. It's awful. It's I like I recognize that 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 contributed to my internalized misogyny to be like I am an exception. I'm an exception. I'm an exception. I'm not like other girls. Yeah. I'm not like other girls. And that's a way to keep everyone divided and avoid uh, equality from ever happening. Um, and so I think I, I obviously don't think that the way that I look at comedy is um, gendered, though I recognize. I recognize lots of internalized misogyny and patterns where I did think I was an exception in my life. Particularly, of course, I thought that I was special for doing computer science until I realized that that was just a dumb thing that I just believed men who were misogynists. Yes. Yes. And is there, is there a culture of exceptionalism in comedy? Mm, I think yes. I think it's it's gotten much much better. I don't think it's great, but I, but it is has gotten better. I'm I suppose I'm grasping slightly at what the at what the exceptionalism means. I've not heard that phrase before. I think I understand from your. You're use funny of it. for a woman. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like you're funny. Oh, you. But yes, of course there is. In that case, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, we. You know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hear. I hear the phrase. So and so is funny for a woman. In like not from other men, but I hear it reported from women. You know, what I mean, I I I I don't have to be there when some asshole in a comedy club tells a female before they're funny for a woman. Um, but I hear it. Of course, of course, that happens. Okay, cultural exceptionalism. I do understand that. That now makes my question seem uh, not charmingly naive. <laughs> I think I've only just caught up with what that phrase means. Okay, um, let's talk about um, conditional anxiety. I hope that's what exceptionalism is. No, now no, no, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. The thing is, well, this, I mean, this raises another thing, which is that you are, uh, you're really smart and not all comedians are as smart as you. Like I find, like I'm having to raise my, I feel, I feel a sense of having to raise my game as an interviewer because I'm like, oh, you're not some scumbag like a lot of us who kind of rubbed two jokes together and kept going for 15 years like i feel like you've been very intentional with your career and you're a smart lady in the world with a real job right like if you were doing if you were already on mock the week a couple of times before you quit your day job then you had a good day job right okay that's hilarious to me because i feel like i never fit in with anyone first of all i i think i'm a dumbass (laughs) um and then because that's healthy. And then the other thing is like, I feel because I have a day job, I can't, can't call myself a comedian. And so every time I am in any comedian, like group, I always feel like a fraud because it's like, well, I just do this on the side. And so I'm not legit. So I was legit for those three weeks, but that was the only <laughs> I'm gonna, time. I, I the show notes legit. of this episode are going to begin three week old comedian, Olga Kog. <laughs> only legit for a miserable three weeks. Isn't that funny that you would, that someone as, educated and empowered and uh forceful as you as as powerful i guess as as you would think that you're not you're not a real one you you don't count is that is that you buying into a kind of internalized exceptionalism where you go oh but i'm not a real comedian i don't count i mean i just don't think that it's that out of the realm of possi- like out of the realm of 
not sorry not possibility but like reasonability it's not it's not unreasonable to say you can call yourself a job when that is the job that you do and that's the thing that pays you yeah 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 maybe maybe. like that's the thing that you make money off of it's not unreasonable, but it's like comedy doesn't pay me specifically now. So yeah, it's sure. just like, <laughs> what what leg what leg do I have to stand on to say that I'm a good? Well, player? I don't know this. Sorry, are you? Am I uninvited? For, uninvited from the podcast? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, terminate the interview at uh, two fifty nine. <laughs> Um, no, I'm, I, I mean, for me, that opens up this whole other thing of I'm sure that when I was new to comedy, I felt like there are real comics and then there are pretenders. You know, that seems now to be a very immature way of looking at comedy. Like, like you either. I think anyone who has done a gig knows a bit what it's like. And yeah, they may not be a Sarah Millican. You know what I mean? They might not be someone who's devoted their life to it for 15 years, but they're still a comic. And I think at the time, I think when I started, I would have been very much in the camp of going, you're not real unless you're, unless you're doing it every night. You know what I mean? In that way that I think is now preposterous. I think that the people who are funny on social media, on like YouTube or TikTok or wherever, um, will, they will not believe that most of us certainly used to and hopefully one day again we'll drive up and down motorways we will physically change our space we will put (laughs) ourselves through the hardship of getting back from a gig at two in the morning and then going to a day job they'll just be like why did you do that you fucking idiots but we'll be like no that was our that's the badge of honor that's why i feel free to look down on you even though you have a bajillion times the reach that i do you're not proper i don't know i'm I'm getting off the sort of point here but i suppose for me it's a it's a thing that I, i probably started off thinking yeah there are proper comics and 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 people who aren't really proper and now i'm like all of that is bullshit like if you're doing you know if you're focused on a thing and you care about it and you're doing it passionately that's the end of it so i mean i agree and i do think that it's like obviously horrendously capitalistic and dystopian to identify as the thing that makes you money or i suppose like society thinks gives you value but that being said, does that mean that like my dad can identify as like a fisherman when people ask him what he does? I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Let's talk about. I wrote. I made a note on uh, on the recording. Um, conditional anxiety. Remind me, what's the bit in the show when you're talking about conditional anxiety? Were you talking about your anxiety that the conditions don't fit? It's a computery term that I wanted to understand both the term and the parallel as you yes. use it in the show. So um, if you break down most computer programs, they break down to something called a conditional, which is a building block of all programs, which is like if you you take in conditions and then you write out um, results. Mm -hmm. So if this happens, then this happens. If that happens, like if this is the input, if you input your email and password into Gmail, then it will land you in your inbox. If yep. you put my email and my password, then we'll be in my inbox. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, um, when you write computer programs, you have to account for every possible scenario. You have to account for every possible email password combination that comes in and write out what happens if that comes in, right? So if then, if then, if then. And so for a computer scientist, as I say in the show, it's an occupational hazard to constantly think of every possible scenario because that's what you need to do for your program not to crash but in real life the idea that you're thinking through every possible scenario is anxiety like i will i won't be able to go to sleep because i'll be like what if there's a i don't know an earthquake tomorrow what if tomorrow someone with my exact name i don't know goes missing i don't know 
those are the two, the two on the top those of my head. Those two Earthquake. and no other possibilities. Not me, but another, <laughs> another Olga Kahn goes missing. Yeah. So that and so that's my question then: is to what extent is that anxiety as depicted by you in the show? To what extent do you see that as typical common or garden anxiety? And to what extent do you see that as anxiety that you particularly suffer from? Like, have you got a big anxiety problem and you're expressing it through a, a, a computer description? A computer description, listen to me. <laughs> but are you, Computer description? But are you, do you know what I mean? Do you, do you have those kind of anxieties of like lying awake at night thinking about earthquakes in, more so than the average person who's kind of alive to the possibility of climate change say i don't think that i have more anxiety or less anxiety than an average person i just think i have the a frame of understanding it that is quite neat yes and also maybe that that frame kind of makes me more aware of it because i i i whenever i feel these feelings i kind of stop and i think well that's what this is yes whereas i think before i had that frame of understanding it just felt like general feels yes yeah general feels <laughs> that's again that's a very twitter slash meme way of uh <laughs> of, that's what that is that's feels <laughs> um so okay so not more than not more than usual anxiety and do but but i do appreciate that that i mean that way of recognizing it as you say framing it in such a way that you can understand it i'm thinking this because that like that that's quite a healthy way to live you know that that's it's i guess it's it's not a different way of thinking so much as a useful language with which to articulate your thinking to yourself yes that being said i do think i have some underlying anxieties that are maybe i think a lot of people have but not everyone like for example one of the reasons why um i had to stay at my job was because i wanted to get a residency here in the uk and so i constantly have had and it's very difficult to unlearn something like that is um like deportation anxiety the idea that i won't be able to stay in a place where i consider home and go and the thing is because i've lived on visas since i was 13 that anxiety is, has been there since I was 13. The idea that like, oh, I'm building a, a home here. I'm building a community here, but I could be taken out at any moment. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a, that's a horrible thing to live through. So that's, that's just tough. like a base level thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, obviously it's so much, so many more people have it so, so much worse. And like, thankfully I've had the, the opportunity to get visas in all these places, mm. but it is, it's, it's like a simmer, simmering base level that I think is, just a tad but higher than a person who doesn't have to worry about that. Yes. Are you able or have you made, have you made kind of, we're coming back to you being smart and intentional about the way you do things. Have you approached your career in a way which is more thought through or more rigorously thought through than the average person doing some jokes for the fun of it like i approached my career i mean because of the because of the i said 10 year career in street performing where i went from i don't know how to do this but i want to learn to i can do this i suppose i approached comedy from a position of a certain degree of confidence like oh i i can't do this but i've done it once and i'm pretty sure i can replicate the last 10 year structure and get good again so do you have because i i notice it in people who have come from proper jobs that they go, oh, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to apply myself. Athena Kablenu really kind of applied herself. She's like, well, I do proper jobs. Let's see comedy as a proper job and let's work hard at it in this direction and make these decisions and ask for help from these people. Whereas, I I mean, I, you know, for all my confidence, I kind of blundered into it. Did you, how how much blunder and how much intention has, has your career path been so far? I think I of of the of the two options I think it's definitely the intention one because I feel like I I waited quite a long time in order to quit and my day job and then w- was proven wrong as famously established at the beginning of this episode. Um so yes, I'm always like so I'm I think my anxiety and also the professional in me and also the fact that I have Eastern European parents who said we will pay for university as long as it's a technical degree. um, It all just kind of combines into this like pragmatic soup where you have to spread all of your eggs onto multiple baskets and then work very hard at every basket um, just because to account for every possible scenario. So if I get fired from the job that I have currently now, I'll have my master's degree. And if that fails, I'll have comedy. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that, fa- if that fails, I guess I'll be a wife. <laughs> we'll see. The lowest of the low. The, the, abs- <laughs> the absolute <laughs> last chance saloon. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we haven't talked like one of the things we haven't done in the, in this interview is sort of established. And I suppose on my part, it's it's out of a sense of like you've probably talked about your Russianness and your I know your dad and his brief stint as the deputy prime minister of Russia. If that doesn't sound like too ludicrous, just a sentence, dad stuff. Just dad stuff. We haven't really kind of talked about that aspect of your background. Partly, I suppose, on my case, I've, out of not wanting you to retread stuff you've you've talked about loads, but. In terms of, have you got brothers and sisters? Yeah. Yes. Um, just in terms of who you were as a kid and the conditions under which you grew up, just tell me a bit about what kind of kid you were. That's a, that's a really great... How would you describe yourself as a kid? I feel like anything I say is just such a platitude. Well, yeah, but I guess we could probably learn something from the platitudes you choose to employ. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I, I don't remember much of my childhood in detail, but, like, my, the big narrative of my life is that I kind of I got a scholarship to a private school when I was, like, eight, and uh, it kind of ruined my life because I hated the school and I felt really scared and lonely and I didn't, you know, I joined halfway through the, a particular year and so everyone had already come to it afresh, made friends and become confident and happy and I kind of blundered blurted in halfway and went oh god I don't fit in here and then kind of got a bit bullied by a teacher and kind of didn't cope with it very well so that you know that's the kind of kid I was which is like ah, you know oh god I'm so oh, no, sorry I, you know, it's fine it's uh, it's ancient history which I relive once a week for money so you have a podcast yeah. <laughs> yeah this is well you know let's let's find out about the link between that and the desperate need to constantly broadcast that everything's okay now um, but uh, <laughs> um, but so so with with that in mind, like what kind of you know were you a cheerful kid? Were you a worried kid? Were you a uh, uh, you know pre visa anxiety or or post visa anxiety? That kind of thirteen year old period. What kind of you know? Would you do you do you have any? Here's a different question, different way of looking at it. Do you have any kind of 
narrative of your own life whereby you're like, well, I'm this kind. And I know you're only 28, but um, which I, as someone considerably older than I, can happily look down on. Oh, you and your imagined problems. Um, but uh, <laughs> but do you do you have the sense of a sort of a narrative of your life and where comedy fits into it? Like, do you does it make sense when you look at yourself as a comedian and go, well, of course, it was always going to be like this? That's really, really interesting because I think if anything... And if comedy is ever going to happen to me in a way that I will acknowledge as comedy happening for me, I think in my mind and the narrative, as you just say, would be against all odds. Because I remember growing up, and this is this is something that I always thought like all children went through, but that doesn't mean that I didn't experience it or it should be dismissed. But this idea like wanting to perform, wanting to perform, wanting to be a performer and then my parents constantly being like that's never going to happen that's unrealistic everybody wants that you only want that because you see other people on tv doing it and that's the only job you're exposed to like growing up you don't know what an economist does but you know what a tv presenter does and so you want to be that thing and so i just remember any kind of like my attempts at creativity or performance were shut down not in a way that it's like will cut you off and shut you in your room. But in a way that was kind of like, oh, that's quite frivolous, Olga. Oh, haha, that's nice. But you should really do your physics homework or whatever. And so then like when I went to university, I remember being like, well, could I do some comedy courses on the side? And my parents were like, well, if you do a technical technical degree, we like you could do whatever you want on the side. And so it feels like I've, if like all, all of me growing up has just been like suppressing these dreams as frivolous. Yeah, yeah, great answer. And I think it's a really Eastern European thing. Because the, I mean, you know, certainly I've not, I don't think I've spoken to anyone on the show who said, like, my parents said we will pay for college if you do a technical degree. Like, that's pretty specific, isn't it? Yeah. And that's, and you think that's quite an Eastern <laughs> European thing. Like, anything's fine as long as it's technical. Yeah. And, and what, what is it about that? What is, what is particularly Eastern European y about technical? Because it translates to a very clear job opportunity. And I think like safety and dependability of that is is very, very important for I think. Yeah. And I guess I think because maybe they lived through this time in the 90s and the 80s where everything was up in the air in Russia, having any sort of dependability anywhere was very, very important. Um, And so. And yeah, and so I, th- I think I think a lot of it has to do, and I've definitely inherited some of that, and this idea that like, okay, well, we have a contingency plan for everything. So do you think that part of what attracts you to comedy is the frivolity of it, is the fact that it isn't dependable? It feels maybe wild and exciting because it is the opposite of something technical upon which you can rely. Or do you feel that it's, it, it is out there in such a way that it can be turned into a reliable thing? I'm about to say something the most conceited thing in the world. Can Please. I? I think I want to do comedy because I think I'm good at it. <laughs> Which I don't I don't think I'm good at programming. I don't think I'm good at any other stuff. I just genuinely Oh my god, why am I crying? <laughs> yeah, I j- like it's that's Oh my god. I don't know why. I think that's a very bold thing to say, but yeah, that's why. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Why are you, it's just, Olga, I think why are you crying? Like, yeah. Why are you crying? What is it about that that's made you cry? <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in pursuing it because I'm, I think this is interesting. And maybe I, I think certainly when I cry, it's because I've released a thing or it can be useful. So if this is too much, <laughs> you just go, oh, this doesn't go on the pod. But why do you think that made you cry? The idea that you, you just said 
um, I think it's because I'm good in it and I don't think I'm good at these other things. And that made you cry. Is that because because you're sort of deep down worried that you're not good at the things that you've been pressured into doing? <laughs> oh my God, this is ridiculous because I also am on Zoom seeing myself ah, cry. Hide self so you, immediately hide self you. <laughs> Can't believe I didn't say do that at the beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah! I God, oh my God! I genuinely am, every time I hear someone also like being surprised about being emotional anywhere, like on TV or on podcasts, I'll be like, "Yeah, but you knew." <laughs> I genuinely had no idea this was going to happen. Um, I yeah, I get. I guess it's like I think, I think it's very immodest to to. I guess admit that you're good at things. Okay. In a way that is sincere and earnest. Yeah. And I think that's like that it, it just takes a lot to say it because you're so scared to appear arrogant. Oh, so it's more about that. It's more about you saying like it what is it the fear of saying I am good at this? Yes. It, I think I mean a lot of it is that and another yeah, sorry. And I think with with all the other things that I was listing about like being pragmatic and doing things. I always felt like I was doing them and the feeling that I had doing them was this is the right thing to do. But when I started doing comedy, it was the first time in my life that I felt like, oh, well, this is this is this is what a good thing to do feels like. I've never felt this way before. That's lovely. That's great. What a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, listen, I, I am absolutely not qualified at anything, really. But um, <laughs> but it, it certainly seems from the outside, you know, you, you can kind of be sort of casual about it and sort of you clearly you live this life whereby you, you know you share your parents um i don't want to say desperation but it, you share your parents values with regard to making sure everything will be okay such that you've done certain things because you thought they would make everything okay and then within that found a thing you're actually brilliant at that you that is nothing to do with those things, right? I never said, I brilliant. said brilliant. The record show, I never <laughs> said brilliant. I said brilliant, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a really... Like, that's for me, and I've said this on the podcast before, so this isn't too much of an overshare, I don't think. But uh, for me, like, it's always a red flag of, like, it's time to start going back into therapy whenever someone says to me it's all going to be all right and I start crying, right? Because I that's just for me. The idea that everything's going to be all right means I can let go of this thing I walk around holding on tight to in my chest, you know, because I deep down believe that it is not going to be all right. And if someone says it is, I go, oh, is it? Oh, God. And I go to bits and I'm like, that's, you're a bit tense. Time to go back to the therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that... Are you trying to tell me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, it's not going to be all right. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. I don't know. That was that was interesting. So I was saying, so armchair philosophy, you've been pressured into doing a thing, you're good at it, but you don't love it like you love the other thing. And what a happy thing to have stumbled upon a yes. thing that you love. And and what a wrench now that it has been, I think, paused, you fear taken away for good. Oh, yeah. Do oh, you really? Time. Well, that's it. Throughout this conversation, you've referred to it as if like, that's over now. And it's not over. It's just on pause. And the fact that it just, it's, it paused just as you were getting into it, that's just arbitrary, isn't it? It's not over. And when it, oh, let's hope you, so. I hope you so. You still exist and you have, you have a catalogue of material and an identity. And whether it takes another year or two to come back, you still exist and it isn't over. Surely. 
I think that's the difference between me and you. What, you're less optimistic or you're more prepared for everything going tits up? Well, I think, yeah, I guess, I, yeah, I guess, I guess, like, I, I hope that, is it, do they say this? Like, I, you can't eat hope for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> if they don't, they'll start now. <laughs> That's a great show title for you, by the way. A fantastic show title. <laughs> Yeah, okay. But it's not in your nature to simply hope for something because you need to be prepared. No. Mm -hmm. So am I right in supposing that part of the way you deal with things going wrong is to double down on making sure you're covered in every other aspect? And, and specifically, I mean, you've said that, but specifically to imagine that it's gone wrong forever because then you won't have your heart broken. Oh my goodness, 100%. Oh, you've articulated it so, so well. I've been talking about this all week about like the, the, the tricky thing, and especially in a creative industry, when you pitch things to be like, you need to do your absolute best job, but don't at any point ever think it's ever going to happen. Yeah. And the, which, which is such a, which is such a conflicting signal to, to, to send to your brain to be like, do the best possible job. For, for nothing. You cannot think of, you cannot think it's going I to happen. I struggle with that. Yeah. I struggle with that, but I struggle with it it's so that I, I don't do the work. <laughs> I go, well, what's the point? I don't want to put my heart and soul into this. I'm just, my, my heart's too vulnerable to breaking that I can't, no, I can't. Yeah, and that's a reasonable response. Yeah. That's a reasonable response. So, so have you had projects where you, are you like, are you, as well as doing your uh, temporary day job, <laughs> I'm not going to make you refer to it as your temporary day job, your fallback, you've got something to fall back on. Um, <laughs> As well as doing that, are you still producing comedy? Are you still writing new jokes or writing scripts or stuff like that at the moment? Yeah. And does it feel emotionally different to be doing so under these conditions to, to how it felt last year? Or, well, yeah, sorry, the year before. Oh, God. I think it feels the same in that, like, I always had... I only had three weeks of my life in which I could only do comedy, right? So doing comedy on the side of something else is the only way I really know how to do it. Because previously I had the, the in normal times, I had a day job too. Um, I guess what's different now is that this is how, again, I see everything it's structurally, so I apologize for that. But it's like in the pie chart of comedy... I would say 90% of it was live performance to me. It's the thing that I enjoyed the most. So everything else was 10%. So I loved live performance. So if anything really bad went badly in the 10%, I always had the 90% padding of, I can literally just go on stage and do the thing that I love most. And I'm doing the 10% in order to finance the other 90. And once that is gone, the whole pie is now stuff I didn't really ever care about. Like comedy acting. Mm -hmm do hire me but like that type mm. of stuff and so um i feel like rejections for things feel much heavier because i don't have the padding of live comedy that thing that i love the yeah. most and do you feel that i don't know i don't know that I'm, I'm not in the right place to answer that at the moment i i, I certainly Sorry. when the pandemic kicked off i was i was exhausted I was exhausted of, of the road and I was exhausted of going to Edinburgh. I've been to Edinburgh every year for 26 years. Do you know what I mean? Like one way or another. Oh <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? God. I love it. I love it. I've, you know, I've, I've uh, uh, extemporized on this before. Like some people go to, some comics go to Edinburgh and go, how can I make sure I never have to do this again? And I went to Edinburgh and went, how can I make sure I'm here every year for the rest of my life? Like I love it. I love the energy and the chaos and the creativity. I just love it. That just, that's completely aligned with all of my values. 
Um, so I was shattered. So when the pandemic hit, part of me thought, thank God. It really did. It really did. When the circuit exploded, <laughs> part of me thought, well, thank God for that, because I was never going to stop gigging. And now that it's been taken away, I can lie on my back and breathe, you know? So, so I, I feel very differently about, about those things. I mean, I passionately hope it comes back. What are the three most important things you know about writing comedy? Just off the top, what? Just well, let me what? phrase it differently then. If you had to train up your replacement and you've got like, oh God, you're going to get disintegrated in a couple of minutes time. You've got to train up the replacement Olga Cock to be as good at comedy as you. What are you going to say to him? Uh... Oh God! That that the re, the reversion of that question is simply a way of making the incredible abruptness and difficult challenge of it seem fun. <laughs> oh no no no! no. It, it it is super 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 fun. Uh, mentally putting myself in a position of authority, trying to do that. Um, I think I one of the 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 big things is. Oh God! Uh, you know what? Are the, all I'm after is like in in crisis. What are the you've got? To, you've got to hand in a brand new thing in half an hour. What are your What are your principles? What do you basically work towards? Never ever be too condescending. No matter how funny what you're saying is, when you're condescending, it puts people off and it's not fun. Like I've seen so much comedy where it's like, yeah, this is technically really good, but like the fact that you're being condescending is very upsetting. And so a lot of the time, especially when a joke setup requires explaining like of a concept that people don't know, or maybe like, I don't know, a historical event or historical figure that people don't know. When you do that setup in an explanation, do it in the most like low status way you can because you never ever want to appear condescending right um that's number one um uh number two uh being reductive is the easiest way to be funny so if you are using that tool use it sparingly and use it in, in an innovative example way. what do because you mean give being us- reductive is the it's such a basic give me an example of, of uh i don't know when people are like Oh, God. I mean, I adore Seinfeld and everything he's done. But you can look at anything and be like, if aliens arrived at Earth, they'd be like, what's a building? You could do that with anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, looking lo- looking at anything as a newborn baby is the, the easiest r- route to creating a bit. And so I think that's a tool that's overused. And if you're going to do that you need to do it in in an innovative way and you need to do it sparingly you can't just constantly be like and if you show a baby an ipad <laughs> what? okay that's two. Oh god oh sometimes i'm afraid of silence sometimes i will be so desperate to have a laugh every every few seconds that i will not endeavor at a more elaborate bit and so i'm so afraid of silence where in reality i love so many stand-ups who will like go on in an anecdote and will only like arrive at a laugh at the very end but for me the idea of two or three minutes of silence are horrifying that's so those are three fantastic answers and i apologize for how horrendous the question was but we got no, those no. three it really kind of works and it kind of like oh these things are important to you <laughs> that really works that silence thing is so hard to do because when you're a newer comic you have to have a hit rate and you have to prove 
prove that in your tiny, tiny allotted time that you can go bang, 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 bang. How do you learn? How do any of us learn to make use of silence and accommodate the right kind of silence? Silence that isn't just dead, but silence that is kind of alive. Like I think of that with music. Some of my favourite kind of like singer-songwriters will just have like a note and then nothing and you're just like, oh, it's all going on in there. But like, you can't just schlep up to your first ever yeah. music gig in the top room of a pub and go, okay, I've plugged it in. You know, <laughs> that's hard. That's hard to achieve. Um, what is the uh, the best advice that you were ever given by someone else about writing, about writing stand-up? Um, I think that this is something that I've... Genuinely, I've taken every comedy class under the sun. I've spent so much money on comedy classes. You have no idea. <laughs> I had a three hour holding the microphone masterclass. I've taken every, I've taken every single comedy class under the sun. And I think there is, especially when I was starting out, there is a lot of anxiety around, well, this is boring. No one's going to find this interesting. And I think just like trusting yourself to be like, no, just talk about it. You will like, if you want to talk about it, just try talking about it because, and this is something that comes up all the time. And I remember back in the day I would start and I would just shoot myself like down right away. Just be like, Oh, this is boring. This is not, you're not going to find this interesting. And it's like, well, if you find it interesting, there's a way to make it interesting for the audience. You just have to believe in yourself. That's great. And also, of course you took every course under the sun because you're a machine <laughs> learner. I, I, I don't know what machine learning is. I, I've just made that up, but you're a, you're a get the manual get the manual and learn the manual and learn how to do the thing. Yeah. What though? I mean, as someone that, cause I've taken, I've never took a comedy course. I've taken loads of like, clowning courses. I've crashed out of hundreds of clowning courses, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that's interesting. So I, what, what question do I want to ask of someone? I feel this is an opportunity of someone who's done all the courses and read all the books. Like, uh, is there a particular thing that you would recommend? Is there a particular person or attitude towards something or a resource that you think actually this is the nearest this nearest it's come to to then what I've discovered as a pro comic the best thing that the courses did for me is create a community and I think like the comedy community is I, I think maybe I'm a special case in that I arrived from university to a brand new city to me at the time which was London and I didn't know anyone and through the comedy courses I met my entire social circle so everyone I hang out with is either a comedian or people I met through comedians and so the thing that is like lasting for me for the from those courses is is the comedy community and so there's like there's little cohorts and like little groups of people who are like we started so I occasionally run a night called joy multiplication and i started with the phenomenal chloe pats chloe pats sam lake and huge yeah, Davies, yeah. and all of us met on the same day in a basement of so in the basement of soho theater at this course and so like the fact that we've been through going through this literally all together is the best feeling in the world so if you don't go to the courses to like learn how to hold a mic you go there to make like friends for life and the people in the industry that will get you beautifully put that's beautifully put um, is there really no word for empathy in Russian? There is empatia, which is literally a transliteration of empathy, but no one has ever used it ever. <laughs> Great answer. Like I literally told my parents about it and they were like, I've never heard that word. So like technically there's a word for it, but it's I never mean, that ever is used. So like there's a, there's an Al Murray joke, I think from years ago, which is uh, maybe it's not Al Murray. But like, you know, the Germans have no word for happy or something like it sounds, you know, it sounds like exactly the Russians have got no word for empathy. It's that, you yeah. know, what? 
Like, is that just... <laughs> that seems offensive. You can say it. <laughs> I can say it. Yeah, and after I told my mom about it, she's like, okay, at, at, when I don't respond to her text, she'll text me being like, have you heard of empathy? I heard it's really <laughs> trendy right now. Mate, if your parents are calling back to your material, you're doing something <laughs> right. You're doing something right. How do they feel about it? Do they, Do they? you know, do, is there a level of kind of success that you've had, like the nomination or being on TV or something that makes them go, okay, it might not be a... A technical thing, but it's good. No, they have no idea. No, no, they're very much it's a hobby. Like, because I don't, I haven't achieved success in any tangible way in their lives. So I think that that that's so there so isn't. They, there's they no upper limit. There's like Netflix special arena tour. It they don't have mean Netflix. anything to them. It wouldn't mean anything to them. It would not mean anything. Oh, to them. mate. I refer you to your earlier tears and about how important this is to you. <laughs> is there any way you could? Can you foresee any way of making them get it? Or is that just you're so past that it doesn't mean anything to you anymore? Yeah, I don't I don't think that, that their approval is something that I necessarily need or want. Fair, I mean very good. That that answer that, that answer told everyone a lot more about the questioner than you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mommy loves you. It's okay. <laughs> I have one final thing, which is uh, sort of it doesn't really fit anywhere. But you mentioned in the show that as a teenager, you were briefly right wing. <laughs> and I've just never heard anyone say that before. And traditionally, comics get more right wing the older they get. So to have gone, gone in the opposite direction is fascinating to me. I, for, for some reason, I just assumed that everyone... Okay, not everyone. Let's just say <laughs> if you have conservative parents, early on, you kind of like inherit their views because you just kind of have never thought about politics before so you're just like my parents voted for that so i guess i'd vote for that and so when it comes to i guess like a bit older you start to question that and university is probably when you start to question that and um so so that's i think i i thought that it was more of a classic scenario than than people than you're portraying it as if you have conservative parents like okay that's what i think but that being said I think I was I think there there was a naivete in me that never thought about politics and then I was like introduced to the idea of libertarianism and I was like oh my god cool we make the rules and so <laughs> I think a few months into that I was like oh there are holes in this ideology but I think yeah. as a top line it's it's pretty sexy <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I do, I do see what you mean about like, you know, you might grow up with your parents' ideology. It was just the way you phrased it, I framed it in the show that you know you were briefly right wing. It sort of made it sound like you joined a gang. Or something. <laughs> do you know what I, mean? I think yeah, the, the libertarian gang at my university for three three magical months. Ah, I was, I was hoping it was going to be three weeks. There, how structurally neat that would be. Oh no, um, should we re- should we redo? It? Yeah, <laughs> let's not retake it. <laughs> But I will leave in you offering to retake it. That says something. I don't know what it says. But what's your what's your favorite meme? What 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 meme are you enjoying at the moment? Oh, this will this will be outdated tomorrow. But what is it? What is it? What is it? Am I enjoying right now? Oh God! I just I love the memification of sanctimonious language so one of the things that i i said literally earlier about like writing writing advice don't ever be condescending so this like this like but you're not ready for that conversation like do you know what i mean so like all i hate like the the way i this condescending really sanctimonious language really irks me so the fact that it's being memefied right now because of like 
you also always see these those infographics on Instagram that are all really like, you might not know this, but actually, and I hate that, just because, like, <laughs> tell me the facts. Don't be all hoity-toity about the fact that you learned it on Wikipedia five minutes before me. And so the fact that that type of language is being memefied and made fun of is very satisfying to me. That's very nice. That's very nice. I will look out for those. And is there any other, just in terms of stand-up jokes, like so just thinking of some of your favourite jokes, your favourite short jokes, like the rib example, you know, are there any other kind of ones that particularly you're like, oh, I love this? Uh, there's So I, the one that it's like at the top of my head right now, just because I... I Joe Sutherland, an incredible comedian who yes, I absolutely Joe, adore, I, I know, Joe, has a great. line that I kid you not, I reference maybe like most days, which is not the best acting I've ever seen, but definitely the most. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild, Ian, isn't it? That's great. Oh it's my god. So good. Definitely the most. Very nice. Thanks, man. <laughs> So that was Olga. You can't eat hope for dinner. I mean, I don't know that many people from Eastern Europe, but uh, that checks out. <laughs> I think from the people I do know um, uh, who grew up uh, or have parents from Eastern Europe, that kind of just unceasing pragmatism. You can't eat hope for dinner. My God. Um, I, uh, I think I, I try and eat a lot of hope for dinner and I starve. I starve in a kind of way. <laughs> Meaningless. Um, thank you so much to Olga for uh, coming along to do that show. Uh, I can't wait to get back to the real world. Someone sent me an email about Edinburgh. Christ knows what's happening there. Um, I'm sure it's not going ahead. I'm sure it won't be allowed. But if it is, I'll be there. And if it is, you'll be there too. But it won't be allowed. So let's not get too excited. Um, thank you to Olga. Thank you to... Oh, remember, it's rockandrollga.com or at rockandrollga to catch up with her online. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at ComComPod. You can email me info at comedianscomedian.com. You can go to stuartgoldsmith.co.uk, which is now your one-stop shop for everything I'm doing uh, outside of this podcast and uh, will soon embrace and envelop and contain comedianscomedian.com. Don't ask me how we're doing that. It's tremendously complicated and I hate every minute of it. But thank you very much to uh, James Hingley and Kev for helping me uh, to make all those decisions. Um, so uh, other things. Oh, man. Yeah, let's have a little post amble in a second. But for now, thank you to Nathan Wood for editing the show, uh, Jake Crossland for the logging Pete Dobbing was your podcast consultant and Rob Smouton did the music. I've been Stu Goldsmith. I'll post Amble at you in just a moment. Thank you. I ended that one with thank you rather than bye. There we go. That's how exciting my life is at the moment. My life's very exciting because the children are going back to school in but a few days and hopefully life will change radically at that point. Um... It occurs to me that the last few postambles have been very therapy-led, and I know this because lots of you have been getting in touch to check I'm all right, and uh, therapy-oriented, I should say. Um, and it only occurs to me now that that's because I'm recording this at 4pm on a Monday, and I normally have therapy at 2.15 on a Monday, so it's often the forefront of my mind. Here's a little thing, though, not to get in the habit of regularly broadcasting... Oh, look, a helicopter. Um, not to get in the in the habit of regularly broadcasting updates on things that I think about myself. But he, let's try and take the concept. And, no, let's not widen it out. Let's drill down and get specific. Massive revelation today. You know, I get nervous before I do these 
recordings, these interviews. I've, I've told you that before, right? You'll know if you've been to see a live one or if if you're in the Insiders Club, I'm sure I've mentioned it there, or if you just uh, listen with your gimlet ear to a lot of these post ambles. Do you know what it is? Do you know why I get so nervous? And this thread permeates my entire life. It's the fear of being discovered to not have done my homework. <laughs> That's it. That is that. Can you imagine the size of the impediment to one's life? If every every deadline, meeting, event, anything, if there is the this is why I got really stressed out doing the infinite sofa last year. I get so anxious, far more so than before gigs, because with gigs, I've done the homework. I can't get called out. Even if the gig goes badly, I can't get accused of not having done the homework because I've done it when I do new material shows. I make a huge deal of the fact that I haven't written anything and I walk on stage with notes. There was no homework to do, so I can't be caught out for it. And now, even even in going to record an episode with people that I like, people I'm friends with even, the fear of not having done as much revision as I might have is just bananas. And it does occur to me, following on from that, that although I have become very deft over the years at sort of uh, sort of nimbly cartwheeling around the requirement to do homework. That's not the same as actually doing your homework, is it? So plenty to reflect on there. But above all, my point remains, do therapy, stick with it, even when it hurts, because that, every so often, you just get a little bomb like that pop out, and you're like, oh, shit, oh, God, that's connected to everything. Now, if you've been paying attention, I would say over the course of the last eight years of post ambles, I have probably had something in the region of what four or five thousand massive bone shaking revelations about my life but this one it's definitely in the top half of those anyway that's all i've got for you now i'm i'm too uh i'm too busy um well looking at helicopters and uh reeling reeling from various revelations about the way i live my life goodbye forever <laughs> obviously not goodbye forever and I will make a concerted effort not to accidentally die before I speak to you next week. Can I leave that in? Who knows? I am so craven and cowering that even that, even that is now making me... Do you remember Tim Minchin years ago made a joke about hoping his children died in a plane crash? I think that was the joke he made. In order to expose the sort of the whatever it is, the the kind of the cringing, cowardly, superstitious nature of people. Like, of course you could... He, I certainly couldn't do that. Of course, one, one Tim Minchin could make that joke because he's so, um, uh, uh, believes what he says, puts his money where his mouth is, puts his children where his beliefs are. Um, I just remember reading about that and thinking, wow, I mean, it's not brave at all, is it? There's no relationship between you saying that and anything bad happening. But my take on that would be, no, if I did that, and then something were to happen, I would blame myself. Even if it was something non-plane crash related, I would go, well, maybe it was that. Because I am just a snivelling little grebe, I suppose. And I'm so terrified of the world and circumstance. And, you know, if you turn up at a gig and they go, oh, so-and-so's asked if they can move here. Do you want to do that? Do you want to change the lineup? My policy is, you do whatever you like. I want to have no involvement with it. I'm not going to say yes. I'm not going to say no. I'm going to have no involvement. Why has that become enshrined in policy? It's because the idea of making a decision that changes things and then something goes wrong and then I would blame myself for that decision. What a lunatic. Oh, my God. Right. Enough of this. Um, 
uh, be good to each other. What was that? What was the end of Sean Hughes? Do you remember the Sean Hughes show? Bless him. Ah, oh, lovely Sean Hughes. Um, do you remember Shawnee's show? Sean's show. Um, he would occasionally do a moral. I remember one time of watching it as a teenager. The moral is, uh, be you know, be be good to your friends and uh, don't smoke. Oh no, he said you've you've got your friends and that's good. And don't smoke. <laughs> that was the moral. So I tried to wrap this up into a moral. Today we learned that therapy remains fun and exciting and I highly recommend you prioritise it in your lives and that I don't like to make jokes about plane crashes. Ah, wrap that up in a neat little bow. And yes, yes, you were all right about WandaVision. But were you? Were you all right about WandaVision? Or is the fact that it's pretty good just such a relief after the first two episodes being not good such a relief that now you feel i was just thinking like god it's brilliant and i thought is it brilliant or am i just relieved that it was something other than the first two episodes um i am enjoying it and to be honest simply for oh, i can't spoil anything can i simply for those in the know the simple fact of the device changing chronologically per episode by the time you get to the 80s and 90s i mean that's pretty fun right okay that's enough and now we're doing pop culture christ on a bike I've had a coffee. Next time, I shall try to leave a bigger gap between the therapy ending, the drinking of the coffee, and the recording of the post-apple. Okay? Okay. Okay.